Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another Tuesday evening edition of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and we are broadcasting from the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and I am really excited and thankful that you have made it a point to join us for tonight's episode. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. Right before we jump back into our topic from the last couple of weeks, we have a follow-up question to the prog- to the question that we started the program with last week. Pastor Murphy, who appeared before Abram in Genesis chapter 17 and verse number 1? And give me just a second, and I will read that. Genesis chapter 17 and verse number 1 says... And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me, and be thou perfect. Who appeared to Abram? Well, I thought we had answered this question uh, last week because I mentioned the Hebrew word there, it's the word El. Uh, This is one of the names of God, and anyone that's familiar with the Bible should be aware that one of the ways that God has revealed himself, his self-revelation, is through the divine names, and each one of those divine names have a particular application depending on the circumstances. In the case of El, uh, El is a singular, and uh, it, the plural of El is the word Elohim. Um, as a matter of fact, um, the word Elohim is the most common and most frequent word used in the Old Testament. And the reason why Elohim is, is a plural um, word uh, it is really hinting about the fact that within the Godhead, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This was only revealed in its fullness in the New Testament, but there are hints of it in the in the Old Testament. And the word Elohim, the fact is plural, but yet that plural noun is used in conjunction with a singular verb. So there is a plural unity there, just like you talk about family. You might have more than one in the family. You can use it with a singular word. The family is going. You don't say the family are going. Um, because the indication there is that it's a, a compound, uh, a plural noun. Uh, and the word El is a single of that, and it is hardly ever used in the Bible by itself. It's always used in conjunction um, in a compound name. For example, you get the word El Shaddai, you get the word Elion, you get the, El, El, the word El Roy. Uh, the word El there, in every case, has to do with God. El Shaddai is the Almighty El Eon is the Most High God, and El Roy is the God who sees. In each one of these cases here, in um, Genesis chapter 17, also Genesis chapter 14, uh, the word is used there, El, is used. 
I mentioned that the word El is used 410 times in the Bible, and it is not only here in chapter 14 and verse 17, but it's also found in 14 verse 18, Genesis 14 verse 19, Genesis 14 verse 20, Genesis 14 verse 20, verse 21, 22, and then it's found in chapter 16 verse 13, it's found in chapter 17 verse 1, chapter 21, 23, chapter 28, 3, chapter 31 verse uh, 13, it's also found in chapter 35 verse 1 and 35 verse 3, 35, 11, and then it's found in chapter 43 verse 14, chapter 48 verse 3, chapter 49 verse 25. The reason why I'm doing all of that is so that the person who's asking this question uh, can understand that it's not just um, restricted to chapter 17, verse 1. The same one that uh, appeared to Abraham is the same one that appeared to him in all of these different parts of Genesis. It's referring to Jehovah God under the title of El. Uh, El um, is the generic name for God, and it has to me. It means something that is strong. It means the Almighty. It always has to do with Him in His role as Creator. Uh, the, the, when God begins to deal in a relationship with people in the Bible, the word that is used is Jehovah. That is his covenant name. So anytime he enters a covenant with any individual, any nation, the word that is used there is Jehovah. It's a personal covenant name that would be used. But El, the significance of El is that it emphasizes his majesty, his glory, his power, and his might. Uh, so the same El is the same Jehovah. It's just that uh, that name Jehovah is used when he's going into covenant relationship. But El emphasizes particularly his sovereign control and also his sovereign power of the universe. So El is the same as Jehovah. Uh, El is the same as El Shaddai. Uh, all of these references I gave, he's the same person in all of those verses. The reason why I think the person might be asking this question, I'm just speculating. I would not be surprised if this is perhaps a Muslim asking a question of this nature because uh, they try to associate this word El with the word. Now El comes from the word Ayel, and, and uh, sometimes they associate that uh, the Muslims with Allah. And I think that's perhaps why the person keeps mentioning this point again. Uh, but um, it, it's really the Hebrew word, and it has to do with God as creator, sovereign creator, God as the Almighty. That's the emphasis of this particular verse. Remember when he comes to Abraham, he's making some promises to Abraham, and he's going to show uh, to Abraham his power and his might to accomplish exactly what he wants to do in Abraham's life. And that's why he appears in this particular designation, L. All right, I trust that that answers your question satisfactorily. Thank you for sending in your question. If you are listening and you have a question, please do send it in to us or call, and you can be put on the air. Again, call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your message to your question to 268-782-1454. All right. Now, if you were listening two weeks ago, you know that we started Bible prophecy as a topic, and Pastor did a very thorough overview of the topic. He discussed some things such as why do we study prophecy? What are some of the rules for studying prophecy, what are some of the schools of interpretation and the advantages and disadvantages of each one, and also he closed that week, that episode, by discussing the dangers of studying Bible prophecy. And then last week, 
went into a lot of detail, specifically in Daniel chapter 2 and a survey of the prophetic world history. He also introduced us to three key topics or three key ideas that unlock the teachings in the Bible. And those ideas are the time of the Gentiles, Daniel's 70 weeks, and Israel's role in the future events. Pastor, is there anything you'd like to add just to kind of catch up someone who may just be tuning in tonight from a brief summary of last week? I I would just like to to say that um, what we have in in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, is a panoramic survey of world history. Uh, It goes from the time of the captivity of Babylon when Israel was carried into captivity up until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. Uh, So we have a a complete outline of what's going to happen. It's history, basically, it's prophecy that is fulfilled. And uh, prophecy is history that is um, to be completed. So I just want to assure the public that we don't have to worry about what's going to happen. We've already got it pre-written for us, and the whole panoramic survey of what's going to happen in world history um, is all there for us in the book of Daniel. I would like to add that there's not going to be, uh, you know, the the next kingdom that is coming, uh, you don't have to worry about where it's coming from. The Bible is very, very clear. It's going to be the revived Roman Empire out of Europe, and the Bible specifies that the Antichrist is going to come out of that particular ten-nation confederacy that you read in the book of Daniel chapter 2. So for those of you who want to be assured of uh, the future in terms of what's going to happen, uh, God uh, gave this in prophecy so that we can have an idea uh, of how soon his return will be, when he will be coming, and when we begin to see a lot of these things uh, in a pattern or a shape uh, begin to take place, we ought to be aware that we have minutes to midnight and the, the Lord's return is much sooner than we think. Pastor, you mentioned the Roman Empire, and I came across some information this week, and I thought it was actually quite sobering and almost scary. Causes for the fall of the Roman Empire, open borders, corrupt politicians, loss of a common language, the welfare state, violent entertainment, the decline of morality, the decline of infertility rate, the rise in pedophilia, class warfare, and that's only about a third of the list, but that summarizes what our Western world has become and is going. If they read uh, Gibbons, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, he, he does go into that those details, and he explains, you know... Every civilization goes into a cycle. You've got the birth, the maturity, uh, old age, and then you die. Every known civilization has gone through those stages. And uh, the thing about the Roman Empire is that we, and all the previous civilizations, that we don't seem to learn from history. We keep making the same mistakes. Anyone would think that when you look at those things you just mentioned, which um, anybody can study in a historical book to discover that these are the... Uh, forces that led to the decline of the Roman Empire, when you look at those and compare them today with any uh, modern Western society, we're exactly at that same point. We're at a very critical point. You mentioned uh, pedophilia for just a moment. We're headed in that direction as well. You talk about the welfare state. We're right there. You talk about uh, the fact that uh, there are no borders and everybody can come and do whatever they want to. We're headed to that in that state. We are in that condition right now, and I think it augurs evil for the future. Pastor, we have a caller on the air, caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, my question is it, it, it's concerning a woman with, and, and her child, and the child, was, there was a demon in, in the child. Uh-huh. So, and it, and she, she went to Jesus Christ, 
and and the Jesus um, responded by telling her about feeding the children, let the children eat the bread and before the dog, instead of feeding, feeding the dog with the bread, and the woman responded with, um, but the dog eat the crumbs under the table. Uh -huh. I, I don't understand that. I, I wish, I, I hope the pastor could uh, enlighten me on that. I wish you had given me the exact passage. I'm familiar with the passage you're talking about. I think it's the Syrophoenician woman. <laughs> yes, it's Mark 7, chapter 7 and 8, yeah. okay, let's, verse 25. Let, let's just go to that very quickly. Um, Mark. Seven. Mark 7 and 8, chapter 7 and 8, uh -huh. verse 25. Okay. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a Gideon, the Gideon uh, Bible. Okay. Um, I, I know it has to do with the, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you don't have... Yes, she was a Gentile. Right, right. Uh, oh yeah, here it is, uh, chapter 26, uh, uh, let me just read it, chapter 7, it reads, and, uh, and from thence he rose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into an house, and would have no man know it, but he uh, could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician uh, by nation, and she besought him that he would uh, cast forth the devil out of her daughter. Yeah. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children uh, uh, first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. Yes. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yea, the dogs under the table eat of the eat children's crumbs. Right. This is yeah. a re this this reference here, really in truth and fact, um, has to do with uh, when he says it's not good to uh, let the children be, uh, for, let the children first be fed, for it's not meat to take the children's bread. Remember that when Christ came on earth, he came to, uh, to really to as a Jewish Messiah. I think you're, you're aware of that. He came as a Jewish Messiah. Yeah. Uh, because he came to the Jews, and, yeah. and, and uh, you remember if you studied the book of Matthew, he had told the. Uh, the disciples that he was sending them forth and that they were not to go into the, the areas of the Gentiles yeah. because officially uh, he came as the promised Messiah uh, for the Jew the Jews rejected him and then he turned to the Gentiles it's not as though he didn't have the Gentiles in mind the Jews yeah. were going to be the instruments and the agents through which the Gentiles would be reached someone had some human instrument had to be used to reach the world yeah. the Jews were chosen and uh, God sovereignly did it. In this particular passage, uh, he's trying to emphasize that. He's trying to say to this Greek woman, uh, basically, you know, I really didn't, I came to the Jews to bring, uh, as the Messiah of the Jews, and I must meet the needs of the children, first of all, which would be the Jewish nation. Uh, and, 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 and he said, it's not me to take what I brought for the Jews to give to the Gentiles. Now, he used an insulting term here, dogs, but that's how the Jews... Um, would normally describe the Gentiles. Yeah. You'll find in the book of Revelation said that outside are dogs as well. It's a, it's a very demeaning term. But his point was this. Uh, she turned the table on him with wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and this is what amazed her. She said, she answered and said, yes, Lord, but yet the dogs under the table eat of the eat children's the crumbs. crumbs. So he's saying, listen, even though you can't give me what belongs to the children, I'm just satisfied with the crumbs. Oh. <laughs> this is what she's saying, basically. And this is what boldened over. I think he was pulling out her faith. Does she really, uh, is she willing to, to, um, to accept me, to believe in me? Is she willing to 
yield to me? Uh, is she willing to challenge me, as it were? And yeah. I think that's exactly what she does here. So she, she acts in wisdom, supreme wisdom, so that even though he's uh, trying to, as much as Paul, seems to be forcing her away, yeah. yet she's finding a way back to him to say, you're the solution to this problem. You've got to heal my child. And that's why the Lord said, and when she was come into his house, and when he, she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and a daughter yes. laid upon his bed. Yes. Uh, in other words, he did respond to her, he did, but yes. she was willing to challenge him yes. and was not um, not allowing an insult yes. to prevent her from... Uh, um, but he didn't really mean to insult her, did he? Well, in a sense, it was designed... I think it is... I don't know if it was uh, the, the word dog. I mean, which of us want to be called a dog? I just think that it was one of those things where, um, you know, we let petty things sometimes cause us not to uh, pursue what we really need. In this case, I think he was drawing out of her, her commitment and her faith in him. Wow. Is, she, is she going to allow uh, a simple, if you might use it, say a, a simple offensive uh, expression yeah. to prevent her from seeking help? Or is she going to bypass that and, and, and press on him? And so she acts in wisdom, and uh, he's bowled over, as it were, yeah. and he responds to her, and he meets her need, and her yeah. child is healed. Yeah. Uh, let me just say this. There are times when people have issues with Christ, uh, yeah. I mean, they might have some difficulties. For example, I've had people who ask the question, why did he choose the Jews? Yeah. You know, everybody asked that question. But he had to choose somebody. Yeah. But there are things that we don't fully understand, but we must press on with what truth is there and not allow things that are difficult in our ways uh, to prevent us from coming to him. Yeah. So I think we, we must be in earnest in seeking him and not be offended by things that might seem to be a barricade between us and himself. I understand. I hope that helps you. Yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. God bless. Yeah, thank you very much for your question. Thank you for listening and continue to encourage others to listen to the program also. Do you have a question? You can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather not speak on the air, but you want to still send in your question, please do via text or WhatsApp to 268 268- 782-1454. Pastor, we have a follow-up text message uh, sure. in relation to the Genesis 17.1. Uh, the individual says, Abraham saw God and lived. That's why I asked, who is El? But uh, may respond to that. Abraham saw God but did not see God in its essence. No man can see God and live, the Bible tells you that. In other words, uh, God is, is perfect light. And uh, we would be consumed. What Abraham saw is what we call a theophany. God manifested himself in a visible form that man can see, but not in the, the very essence and gist of what God is. Uh, no man can, uh, has ever been able to see God in his gist and his essence. But there are in, in the Bible where God has manifested himself in, 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 in what is called a theophany. That is a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of himself. Sometimes he comes to the angel of the Lord in the Bible. Sometimes he comes to the captive of the Lord of hosts in the book of Joshua. So there are times when God manifests himself. But when it says that Abraham saw God, it doesn't mean that he saw God in his essence. He saw God in a manifested form that was not consumable to man. Uh, that's the point that, uh, that you need to be aware of. Um, so I hope that helps to clarify it. When it says he sees God, it doesn't mean he sees God in his essential essence. He saw God in a manifested form, which is referred to in theology terms, as uh, theological terms, as a theophany, uh, a, manifest- a visible manifestation of, of God in a visible form that man can see, but not in the gist and the essence who God really is. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening is 7.50. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, we are also online on Facebook Live. Just go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the video feed. Now, we've already covered a lot of detailed information in relation to Bible prophecy, and we can't rehash all of that every week or we won't have time to cover new material. But if you want to go back and listen specifically to the two previous episodes on this topic, let me just remind you those episodes are out there on the Internet as podcast. It's free. You can download it. You can listen to it off the Internet. All you have to do is go to Google and type in that truth podcast and it'll pop up uh, on my Google. It pops up at the or on my computer. It pops up as the very first search, the first couple of searches. It's out there on several different podcast providers, suppliers, and you can download the last two episodes called Bible Prophecy Overview and Bible Prophecy Part 2, and specifically Daniel Chapter 2. Pastor, where do you want to jump in? What avenue of Bible prophecy? How do you want to address the topic tonight? Well, well what I want to uh, do very quickly is to just mention that in Chapter 2, which we covered, we're not going to rehash that in its totality, but Chapter 2 basically is an um, a outline of the progress of world history uh, that goes from Nebuchadnezzar's time until Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. So we have a whole uh, survey of that, and we're not going to go through that. But what we did discover in chapter 2 is that there are going to be four kingdoms. There's the Babylonian kingdom, there's the Medo-Persian kingdom, there's the Grecian kingdom, the Hellenistic kingdom, and there's the Roman Empire kingdom. We also mentioned that uh, in Daniel chapter 2, the Roman kingdom is going to be divided and it's going to end up in a uh, a ten-form kingdom that is seen in the ten toes of the image that Daniel talks about. So we have an idea that there is going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire really is still there in its um, in its form that it is disintegrated, and all the pieces you find in Europe basically are remnants of the old Roman Empire. And we can expect during the end time that the Bible says that that same. Remember, there are only four kingdoms. There is the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. So there are only four kingdoms. But you find that you go down to the, the, the feet and the toes, there is in the end time going to be a revival of that Roman empire, and that will be expressed in, in four kings or four parts of the Roman empire ruling at one time. And then uh, out of that, we'll find that the Antichrist is going to come. But Daniel chapter 2 lays out the outline of that. And then uh, we want to go into Daniel chapter 7, which is basically the same emphasis that there are going to be four kingdoms, but greater details are given. And then we're going to uh, see that in Daniel chapter 7, focus is placed on the fourth kingdom and the the stages of the fourth kingdom. You're going to find out they're going to talk about the ten, the ten horns, and out of the ten horns, you're going to come one little horn that is the Antichrist. 
So that's what you have in chapter 2. You remember we talked about law of recurrence? Yeah. That you have a, a prophecy or you have a biblical teaching, and then there's another passage that also but it elaborates and expands on it. Chapter 7 expands on chapter 2. The difference between the two of these, by the way, that Daniel chapter 2 is a, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. This is the the view of the world's kingdom from a pagan king, and he described it as magnificent and awesome and terrifying. Uh, and then when we come to chapter 7, Daniel now has a dream. But Daniel's concept of the world empire is not this magnificent, awesome force. He sees it as four ferocious beasts. That's God's perspective of the kingdoms of this world. And so you're going to find out that um, these monstrous beasts that have been discussed in chapter number 7 uh, repeats the same teaching in chapter 2. But there expands and explains and going into greater detail. And that's what I would like us to, tonight to try, begin to focus on chapter number 7 and go to chapter number 7 uh, to help those who are listening to appreciate uh, the Bible prophecy of things to come. Would you like me to start reading it? Yeah, I would like you to start reading uh, chapter 7. Uh, first of all, in verse number 1, you read that, you find that the date of the prophecy of the dream is given. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and vision. So you've got the, the, the date. Then in verses 2 and 3, you've got the description of the dream. Uh, verse 2. And 3. Yeah, it says, And Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. So notice that that is the description of what he saw. Now he's going to go on and give you the details of what that means. So notice two things. The four winds are striving against the sea. The great sea, by the way, is the Mediterranean Sea. And the symbol is there of the sea. Uh, if you know anything about Bible prophecy, the sea is always a symbol of the Gentile nations. Uh, to, f- to show you that, if you look at Isaiah chapter 17 and verse 12 and 13. Isaiah, Isaiah ch- chapter 17, verse 12 and 13. All right. Uh, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. See that the, the nations of the world, the symbol of that, the sea is used as a symbol of the unrest of the nations. These uh, four winds uh, beating against the sea, uh, we're going to talk, the, 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 the four beasts are coming out of the sea. It's coming out of the nation of the Gentiles. That's why the word the word sea is a symbol of that, that these nations are coming out of the sea. The other thing, if you look at Matthew chapter 13, you see there a reference again that the sea is used as a symbol of the Gentile nations. In chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 47 uh, to 50, Matthew chapter th- seven verse forty. Uh, yeah, Matthew chapter thirteen, verse forty-seven to fifty. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it is fully, they drew to the shore, and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. 
So shall it be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and separate the wicked from the from among the righteous. And verse 50 says, And shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There you've got an illustration where the kingdom of God is actually formed by gathering men out of the world. The world is just like the sea. It's like, the, like a net being cast into the sea. So that's the symbolism again that it's the nation of the world that the kingdom of God is formed out of and he takes out of the, out of the, out of the world as it were to see the good and the bad will be cast into. It, it divides humanity into two. One that is saved and not saved. But notice the, the, the words, world, the sea there is the world. Uh, so the symbol of the sea really is the, the, the world and the nations. Um, also, if you look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, this clarifies it even greater. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, and then um, put your hand on Revelation chapter 17, verse uh, 1 and verse 5. All right, Revelation chapter 13. 13, verse 1, yeah. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. Now, we're going to come to this passage because this is another passage that is what we call the principle of recurrency. You're going to find that Revelation now will give you further information on Daniel chapter Daniel. 7. But you notice that the ten horns are here. You're going to find in chapter 7 of Daniel the ten horns are mentioned, but greater details are given. Now notice it rises out of what you see. Yeah. Now look at chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. 17, 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls and talked with me, saying unto me, Come here, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters. waters. Now, look at verse number 5, and you get the explanation. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Okay, there's a, a verse here um, which says when he's interpreting what the seas are, we're told that the seas refer to the, the peoples on whom the woman uh, sits. Uh, I'm looking for it. I, I thought I had it in my reference here, um, but it is um, somewhere in verse number 17. I'll have to come back to that, but there's a verse in there which uh, explains the verse meaning. Verse 3. Verse 3. She sits up. Okay. Sorry, a woman sit up on a scarlet-colored beast full of names. Yeah, but um, there's in this passage. <laughs> I don't know what happened to me uh, with this particular verse here, but... Um, the actual description of the waters, it explains that the waters are actually the the multitudes of the people. Oh, look at verse, I've got it, verse 15. It's not verse 5, it's verse 15. Okay. Sorry about that. And he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the harlot sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Right, that's the point I'm making, that any time the word water is used symbolically in scriptures, it has to do with the nations and the people. And so what you have here in Daniel chapter 7, when the four winds blow upon the seas, you're talking about these nations that are coming out, the Gentile powers rising up out of the seas of the nation, out of the multitude of the nations. The other thing that they notice that the four winds are beating upon the water, and the, the winds refer... Uh, to God's providential agents 
uh, leading to the creation of these world powers. It's these seas, the, the, the winds bringing these animals out of the water, out of the nations. And th- this is the forces, God providential forces, bringing these uh, entities into, into place. And then notice in verse number three, not only do you have the four winds, but it's mentioned here that you've got the four great beasts that are mentioned. These are symbolic again of the Gentile powers. So you've got the date that is given a dream. You've got the description of the dream. And then notice in verse number four to seven, uh, go back to Daniel. You've got the details about these different beasts that are mentioned in Daniel uh, chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. Notice the details. Verse Verse 4 says, The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. I beheld till its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Okay, notice here that this is the first beast. Remember in Nebuchadnezzar's image, the first uh, part of the image is made of gold. Mm -hmm. This is the Babylonian Empire. Uh, By the way, notice that it's a lion uh, and it has eagle's wings. It is very interesting that the symbol of Babylon was a lion with eagle wings. I think anybody that looks at any uh, archaeology, you'll see that uh, even around the, the throne, you have the land with the wings. And also, uh, to confirm that, by the way, we may not have time to do it, but if you were to check Jeremiah 4-7, Jeremiah 48, verse 40, Jeremiah 49, verse 19 and 22, and Jeremiah chapter 50, uh, verse 17 and verse 44, you see that Babylon is described as a land that God is going to bring against Israel. So it's interesting that the prophet Daniel is now using the same symbol of Babylon in this particular passage. But notice something else. He has eagle wings. Uh, we mentioned that the, that the 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 wings are plucked. So clearly that this empire is going to be destroyed. He's actually plucking a chicken, basically. And then in order to lift it up from off the earth, he's made to stand on his feet as a man, and a man's heart is given unto him. This refers to Daniel chapter 4, verse 1 to 37. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? In his pride and his glory, his boasting is not great. Babylon have made, and a voice came from heaven, and he is cast into the into the forest and the wilderness, and he's made like an animal. He eats grass. His fingers uh, grow like the nails grow like claws. His hair become like birds' feathers. And for seven years, he's in the wilderness as a demented person. And then after he repents and acknowledges that God is the God of heaven, he's now restored. So here, this is this is what's going to happen to to Babylon. This great king, because of his pride, will be humble, and he become like a man. All of his pride that he has will be knocked out of him, and that's what that is talking about there. So the first has to do with the lion, which has to do with Babylon, and then in verse number five, notice that comes after Babylon, verse five, and beheld another beast, a second, like a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it in between its teeth and they said thus unto it arise devour much flesh so we're given three details about this second beast this second beast is now a bear now a bear doesn't have the same majesty as a lion but he had the bulk and the power and that's the thing about the Medo-Persian Empire it was a very very vicious empire and depended a lot upon the, the bulk of the army notice that uh, three things we're told about it number one it's raised up on one side. When the Medo-Persian Empire started, uh, this confederacy, confederacy between the two, eventually the Persians dominated, so they were the dominant part. That's why you've got the, 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 the bear lifted up on one side. One side be more powerful than the other, and that's the, the Persian part of it. The other thing is that he has three ribs in his mouth. History tells us that the Medo-Persian Empire destroyed three kingdoms. It destroyed Egypt, 
it destroyed uh, Lydia and it destroyed Babylon. Remember that the Medo-Persian Empire destroyed Babylon. So the three the three uh, ribs in his mouth are the nations that they've conquered, the three kingdoms that conquered, the Egyptian kingdom, the Lydian kingdom, and also the Babylonian kingdom. And then they, they, we're told the third thing about it, we're told is we devour, uh, devour much flesh, a very violent uh, empire that uh, went across the globe conquering uh, these different empires. So those are the three things. So you've got the beer. And then notice the third one in chapter, uh, verse number six. After this I beheld and lo another like a leopard, which had upon its back four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. We're given three details here. Now you had the Babylonian Empire, which is the lion. You got the Medo Persian arm, which is the bear, and notice that it made of the two point it's just two feet, but one raised above the other, one right. And then in this one you notice four things for the four wings of a fowl. One thing to know about the uh, the uh, Grecian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire, was Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire so swiftly. So the whole idea of wings is that it's a very swift mm-hmm. nation. Uh, the leopard as well, as well is known for its speed. The the bear is very clumsy, but the, the leopard is very speedy. And then the third thing, it has four heads. That has to do with the fact that when Alexander, at 31, uh, he conquered the world, and of course he, he died very suddenly. Uh, his kingdom was divided into the four. So the four heads refers to the four different branches of Alexander's empire. Uh, the first empire, of course, was the Ptolemy Empire in Egypt. The second one was the Seleucid Empire in Syria and Babylon. And then Cassander took over the Macedonian Greek part of the empire. And then Tras and uh, Bithynia was taken over by a man called Ly- uh, Lymatius. So you've got the three the four heads, after the demise of the um, the Grecian Empire, it was split into four by the four generals, and those are the four specific areas. That's why you got the four heads. And then we are told that dominion was given to it. Again, talk about world conquest under Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. Did you say he conquered the world at 31? 31, yeah. I'm behind the curve. <laughs> <laughs> but it was done so swiftly. I mean, yeah. the history tells you that very, very swiftly. And there is um, some chart that he died of um, venereal disease, hmm. uh, but he died at a very young age. Uh, but um, this is the Grecian Empire with the swift conquest of the world and then going into demise and dividing into the four different sections with the four different generals. That's where you've got the four heads. And then if you look at verse 7 and 8, you've got the fourth empire. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and beheld a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with its feet, and was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Again, we're given seven facts about the fourth empire. Now notice that uh, you dealt with the the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire, now you've got the Roman Empire. So this is the Roman Empire here, the fourth beast. And we're told several things about it. It was dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. There's never been a more powerful world empire than Rome at this time. This Of the four, this was the most vicious of all of them. And then we're told that they had iron teeth, the symbol there of, of strength within it. And it's important to mention iron here because you remember in the image, yeah. the Roman Empire is made of iron. That's iron why the iron teeth are mentioned here, yeah. so you can identify that. And then he devours and breaks in pieces again, the conquest of the whole world, and he starts with the wretched of defeat. Uh, this is that he's destroyed the others, and then, but he's diverse from all the others. Why? Because he's different. 
you can describe the lion, you can describe the leopard, you can describe the bear, but this is, a, this is a kingdom that is made up of all four. When you come to Revelation chapter 13 and 17, you'll find that it's a composite empire that takes all the elements from the first and builds itself out of that. So that is why he can't really describe it as an animal because he, he got iron teeth. Later on, you discover you have a feet of a, uh, a bear, you can have a body of a leopard, you can have teeth of a lion because he's a composite of, of all the others. And then he has ten horns. Now, this is a, a new truth that is being brought here. Daniel talks about the toes, which is made up of iron and clay, but he, would, he, didn't, he did, didn't go into details. Now, uh, these ten horns relate to the same ten toes of the Roman Empire. So there's the same empire that's being mentioned. But it's something else that now Daniel mentioned in chapter 7. That out of these ten horns comes what? A little horn. And you'll find later that this little horn... Uh, well, let's talk about little horn. Look at verse number 8. I considered the horns and beheld, there came up among them another little horn, before which was before which there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots and beheld in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things now when we, when we go further into this chapter you can see that it will be explained that the ten horns refer to ten kings but notice here that as far as verse number eight there are four facts we're told about the ten horns the, the little horn first of all it rises after the ten horns so the Roman Empire when it's revived is going to be made up of f- ten parts, uh, ten kingdoms. Out of these ten kingdoms, one must come, the eleventh must come. It comes after these are already in place. So this, this, this little horn that's going to come must come after these ten are put in place. Number two, he plucks up three of the horns. This new, which will be the eleventh horn, will now come and destroy three of those, and he's going to replace them. Uh, and uh, he had his eye- and notice this other thing about this, this little horn. He had the eyes of a man. Uh, clearly, it is indicating here that we are not. This is a human being. Uh, he, the symbol of his, the horn is the power that he has, but he's also a human being. He has eyes, and then the other thing is that he speaks great, great things against heaven. Uh, uh, great things. Now you discover later on in, in the book of Revelations, chapter thirteen and seventeen, uh, that this one is going to swear great blasphemous things against God. This is the Antichrist, the little horn that will come, that will rise out of the Roman Empire in the end times. And then uh, if you look at verse number 9 to 12, you've got the destruction of these world empires mentioned by the Ancient of Days. Verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool, his was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Verse 11, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke. I beheld even till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. So you notice in this section, verses 9 to 12, first of all, in verse number 9a, you've got two things. You've got the extermination of the world empire, it'll be destroyed. You've got the enthronement of the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. 
Um, and then you got the, uh, we got, in, uh, when you begin to elucidate who this Ancient of Days is, you got eight facts about him. Number one, his garments are white as snow. This speaks of his holiness and his purity. His hair is like a pure world. That speaks of his wisdom and his knowledge, his omniscience. And then his throne, uh, his fiery speaks, his throne is about to be judged. Anytime you've got fire and, and brass, you've got judgment. And then the wheels of his throne is, is a burning fire again, indicating the execution and the speed. And then the fiery stream goes from, from, his, um, goes from the throne, uh, again speaking all of judgment. And then myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, this speaks of the angelic hosts who serve him and who surround his throne. And then they said the judgment is set in verse number 10. And that judgment is set, the books are open. This is the final uh, white throne judgment when God is going to judge planet Earth. And then you've got the execution of the beast in verse number 4, that the, the beast will be destroyed. And then in verse number 12, there's something very interesting said there. Could you read verse number 12 again? Yes. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season in time. That's the point I'm making here. The, 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 the kingdoms will be lost, to be destroyed. But the influence, the ongoing influence, notice that it says that their lives will be prolonged. So the influence will continue within the, the, the fourth power. In other words, all that Babylon was, all that the Medo-Persian was, all that the Greeks were, this fourth empire would absorb and the influence that they had would fall into this empire. It's interesting today, by the way, that Babylon today is where Iraq was. You remember Sudan? He wanted to rebuild. Uh, be, he was thought himself the new Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to rebuild yeah. Babylon. Yeah. Well, you still got that today. You still got that. And then you've got Persia is Iran. Uh, everybody knows Persia is Iran. And then you've got the Hellenistic Greece. You've got Greece still there and Macedonia still there. So these empires have continued, not as empires, but influence. Everybody knows today that the Greek culture has conquered the Western world, wherever it is. So you still got these elements of the Babylonian elements. You've got the, the Grecian elements. You've got the Persian elements still common today. That's why it says that even though they're destroyed, yet their lives would be extended, their influence would be extended. Then uh, notice in verse number 13 to 14, the descent of the Son of Man. Verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and beheld one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before, they brought him near before him. In verse 14, and there was given him dominion and glory and kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not pass away and his kingdom that that which shall not be destroyed. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, it's the stone that strikes the fourth beast and crumbles the entire world power and then his, his the stone takes over the whole world and grows and becomes this kingdom of God. Yeah. Now we've got further details that the Ancient of Days sits on his throne to judge, but now this Son of Man comes. The Son of Man, we don't have to ask who the Son of Man is. Read Mark chapter, uh, the book, Gospel of Mark. This common word is the Son of Man has come, the Son of Man has come. Read the Gospel, the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. This is now talking about the kingdom being set up by Christ. Uh, he, notice how he comes. He comes with clouds. That's the pattern in which he comes. To whom does he come? He comes to the ancient of death. That's the person to whom he comes. And then what's the prize? The kingdom is given to him. And then what's the purpose? Um, is given to him that others may serve him. So this now talks about the kingdom of Christ being set up after the kingdom of this world is destroyed. 
So the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, comes to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, receives the kingdom, and sets up his kingdom. Now notice verse number 15, that when all Daniel saw all of this, uh, he's kind of dejected. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Wouldn't it trouble you again? Yeah. I mean, you can just imagine uh, you seeing all of these different um, uh, dreams that you have, and you're trying to figure out what they mean. And so he's troubled about them. And then in verse number 7, not only the dejection, but notice the demand that he makes in verse number 7. Verse 16. 16, 16, sorry. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me known the interpretation of the things. Now who stood by? Remember he, the, the thousands upon thousands stood around the throne. He's asking one of these angelic beings, what does this mean? And so you're told in verse 17 and 18, is disclosed to Daniel what this means. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That's the gist of what this is about. This, this, these four animals about the four kingdoms that are going to come. And the fact that the Son of Man comes and receives from the Father, God, the summary of that is that the saints will take over the kingdom. So this is talking about the fact that after these four kingdoms are completed, God sets up his kingdom and the saints rule with him. That's the gist and the essence of what he's saying. Now, that's the summary. So if you now look at verse 19 to 22, Daniel desired to know about these ten horns. Verse 19, Then I would know the truth of the four beasts, which was diverse from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in its head, and of the others which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than its fellows. Verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Verse 22, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and... The time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Okay, again, notice that Daniel is now, is now, they're now reciting to Daniel what he saw. But we got some details that Daniel didn't even mention in the previous verses. For example, we know that he's diverse from all the others. He's a nondescript creature because he's not an animal. He's made up of different, he's a composite animal, basically. So you can't say like you had a beast, you had a, you had a, a lion, you had a bear, you had a, a, um, a leopard. There's no particular animal that can destroy destroy this animal. He's just a composite of all of them. You know that fact. He's exceedingly dreadful. Notice he got the teeth of iron, but he also had the nails of brass. Yeah. See? And remember brass was made up of the what? which one? You're talking about Daniel chapter yeah, yeah, 2? Yeah, the Grecian Empire. See? Right, right. Right, the Grecian Empire. So he is going to be made up of uh, the Roman Empire, is going to have the iron part of it, and also you've got the nail of brass. So he's going to be, you're going to have elements of the Grecian Empire. He devoured from break, etc., etc. And then the ten horns uh, I mentioned, and um, the little horn comes up where three formerly were, were there. And the little horn has eyes, the little horn speaks great things. 
but then we're told a little bit more about him. The little horn is more stout than the others. In other words, he's, he's, he's kind of an obese fat. In other words, he replaces the three. That's the point he's making. He's different. He's not like the, the three horns. He's a little bit different because he replaces three but one. And then the little horn made war with the saints. Notice that. We're now told that. And this is uh, really the Antichrist that we read in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17, that will make war with the saints and destroy the saints. And little horn prevails against the saints. That's the same language, by the way, that you'll find in the book of Revelations when we look at it. So we're dealing here with the Antichrist coming out of these ten nations. This revival in the Roman Empire, you've got these ten uh, kingdoms. Out of these ten kingdoms, you're going to have one arrive after the ten that will take over the three. And he becomes the Antichrist. And when he becomes the Antichrist, he persecutes the saints. And he also conquers the saints. And then we talk in verse number 22, the Ancient of Days, same reference. This is God the Father comes. Judgment is set and given to the saints, and the saints possess the kingdom. The same principle that's taught there in that particular passage. Then in verse number 23 to 27, you've got the disclosure of the, or the interpretation. Verse 23, Thus he said, The four beasts shall be the fourth kingdom. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. So stop right there. That's verse, verse 23. So he's now telling you that the fourth beast is going to be the fourth kingdom that is going to come and he's going to devour the whole earth and he's going to tread it down and he's going to break it in pieces. Then in verse uh, 24, he talks about the horns. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Again, the same reference. The little horn that's going to come is coming out after the ten. He'll take, th- destroy three out of the, out of the ten, and uh, he will replace those three. That's the little horn. Um, and then verse 25, what he should do is, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and dividing of time. Interesting here. Uh, If you listen to the Seventh-day Adventists, they will tell you that uh, this little horn is a pope, and that he changed times. But again, uh, if you look at world history, you've never had, after the demise of the Roman Empire, at any time, ten nations out of that Roman Empire forming a confederacy. We've never had three of those destroyed and another person taken out of those three called the Antichrist. We've never had that. right? So it's very, very clear that this is yet future. This is not something that's taken place. This is yet future. The other thing is that <coughs> um, this one to come is going to speak. You remember uh, they keep saying they speak great things? Now we're talking about the great things about he is going to speak against God and blaspheme God of heaven. Revelation 13 and Revelation chapter 17 when we come there. And then, of course, he's going to wear out the saints. He's going to persecute the saints. Now, this, the saints here, by the way, are not the church. This has to do with the Jewish uh, people that God will bring back into Palestine. Remember, the church will be raptured during this point of time. And uh, these are the saints he's talking about. He's not talking about the believers because the believers will not be here. And then uh, he, notice that he will reign for how long? Time and and times times and times. Three and a half years. Now, let me show you that again. Go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And um, which is interesting, which coordinates with this whole thing. Daniel 9, 27 says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many 
for one week. No, stop right there. The word week there is actually should be seven. Uh, it should not be week. Uh, we used the, they used the, the King James used the word week because week is a set is seven days, but uh, this is seven should be confirmed for seven. Uh-huh. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Question: What is the middle of seven? Three and a half. Three and a half. Yeah. It's referring to the same thing. That's why we're going to go to Daniel chapter 9, because it now explains that this little horn will have reign for three and a half years, and it will have power after three and a half years, three and a half years to control. Now go to uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7. Well, I'm turning there. So can we say that uh, when in that passage that a week is, or the, when we read week, it's talking about the tribulation then? Yeah, it's talking about, but you'll, we'll dis- discuss Daniel okay. chapter 9 because it talks about 70 weeks. It's actually 77. It's 490 years. And it's, it's broken down when you can know when that time begins. Okay. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, but Daniel told you the exact time Christ would die. Uh, I, that might be a shocker, but Daniel gives you the exact year that Christ would have died. Uh, we'll show you that from Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 12, 12, verse 7. Verse 7 says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him who liveth forever, and it shall be for a time, times, and a half. Same period. This is talking about the fact that the Antichrist... God swears that he would only have three and a half years. Uh, that's why you break the covenant in the seven-year period, and then he reigns for three and a half years. Uh, then look, if you look at Revelation chapter 11 for just a moment, verse 2 and 3. All those sword drills as a young person <laughs> paid off. <laughs> Revelation 11, 2 and 3. All right. But the court which is outside the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the nations, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. This is talking again about the same period, but the word, the white nations there, by the way, is the word Gentiles, if you read the old King James for Gentiles. But it's talking about, again, notice, what, how long is forty-two months? Three and a half years. Okay. Three and a half yep. years. So it's talking about during this time, same period, that the Gentiles would have control over the temple for three and a half years. Remember, he breaks the covenant in three and a half years. He makes it come for seven years, breaks it, and he takes over the temple. Now God said he'll only have that for three and a half years. Same period of time, times and times and a half a time. The same person, uh, but Revelation gives you greater details. Look also at uh, Revelations, uh, look at verse, um, Revelations 12, verse 6 and 17. Revelation 12, 12, verse 6. Verse 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Okay, three score is what? Sixty. Yep. So twelve sixty days uh, is three and a half years. That's 30, day, uh, 30 days as the, according to the Jewish calendar. So notice that the, the woman here, by the way, is Israel. If you read the whole passage, she's going to be persecuted, and she has to run, and she's given protected for three and a half years. When the Antichrist breaks the covenant after the seven-year period, in the mi- middle of that period, Israel is protected for three and a half years. Same period, just 42 months, now it's 12, 60 days. And then look at verse number, um, verse number 14. 
Verse number 14 says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time for the face of from the face of the serpent. How, many, how, how much can you get it reiterated? It's the yeah. same three and a half years. Right? She's protected for three and a half years. And then lastly, look at chapter 7, chapter 13, uh, verse 5. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Same thing Daniel says. The same guy is going to be blaspheming God for three and a half, 42 months, three and a half years. See? So this is the Antichrist that is, the Bible talks about. This is not the Pope. This is the Antichrist that will come and will rule the world coming out of the ten-nation confederacy after the uh, the Roman Empire has revived. Is it possible a future Pope is the Antichrist or you don't want to speak No, we'll come to that. The, 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 the Pope is going to be the the second beast. Okay. that aligns itself with the Antichrist and sits on the beast. Uh, so we are going to, we're going to discuss that. But right here in this particular passage, this is the world leader that's coming out of the Ten Nations Confederacy. He destroys three of them. He establishes himself. He blasphemes God, and he's given three and a half years. But that happens because he breaks the covenant with Israel. He has to make a covenant of peace with Israel for seven years. And then in the midst of that, he breaks it, and God said, you've got three and a half years. So what I'm saying to you is that what you have in the book of Daniel is a panoramic survey of world history, where we're headed. And uh, we have to be aware that the Antichrist is coming. We have an idea where he's coming out of. We have an idea what he will do, and we know the duration of his reign. Uh, Daniel gives you all of that. And then notice verse 26, by the way, go back to Daniel chapter number 7. Daniel seven twenty-six says, But the judgment shall sit... And they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. So my point is this. When the Antichrist is destroyed, world history comes to a close. There's no more kingdoms after that, basically. And then uh, if you look at verse 27, the kingdom of the saints is established. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, that's why it can't be the Pope, because if it were the Pope, it means that after the Pope had reigned, the kingdom would become the, king, the, the, kingdom, would become the kingdom of the saints, but the saints have not reigned over the whole world as yet. So it's talking about the kingdom that's coming after the Antichrist is destroyed, what is called the Millennium Kingdom. Notice the scope of that kingdom is a global kingdom to all of the world. The subject of those kingdoms are the saints. The span of that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and the substance of it is that you serve and obey God during this period of time. So this is talking about the kingdom of God being established. Revelation chapter 19, by the way, explains the establishment of this kingdom. If we would have had time to read Revelation chapter 19. And then notice verse 28. Daniel is still discomforted. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Again, even though he has all of this, he's trying to deal with it, trying to cope with it. He's still trying to grasp, get his his mind around it. And uh, Daniel clearly in this passage um, his, his thoughts are troubled. 
uh, yet he keeps the matters in his mind and he ponders what this really means and the significance of it. And that's why later on God gives Daniel more revelation and more revelation so that he gets a greater understanding of what uh, this is about. So that's chapter number 7 that actually takes the same four kingdoms in chapter 2 um, by the principle of recurrence, law of recurrence, it fills in details that chapter 2 did not give you and give you more insight into the fourth kingdom, especially the ten kingdom expression of it, and then the small horn that comes out of the ten horns dealing with the Antichrist. Those are the details that we have there in Daniel chapter number 7. As you're discussing this, my mind is put at peace, and I'm encouraged that I can't think of any other world religion where their holy book is making claims about the future uh, so far into the future. It just uh, emboldens my spirit that I'm worshiping the true God and that, that the Bible is true. You can not only look back at prophecies that have been fulfilled, but how things are coming together for future prophecies. But that's one of the unique features of Christianity. There's no other religion nowhere, any place, that has as detailed prophecy as the Bible has. The Quran doesn't have it. The, the, the Vedas doesn't have it. Uh, the Buddhists don't have it. The Taoists don't have it. There's no other religion on planet Earth that gives you this minute detail of world history that you can actually go back and trace all of these world world empires happening. This is not cunning divine fables. This is exactly God giving us a preview of world history because our God is the omnipotent, omniscient God who knows everything. He's a sovereign God that controls everything and he's moving this world towards a climax. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end and he knows all in between because he's the God, the, the true and the living God, uh, that we worship. Pastor, I want to ask you a quick question about the Pope since he came up. I uh, came across an article this week that actually seemed to stir up a lot of controversy. In his new book, this author by the name of Scalfari, a longtime friend of Pope Francis and a frequent papal interviewer, claims that the Pope told him that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, but only in a semblance of a spirit. Now, that statement was made two weeks ago, and the Pope has yet to deny that he made such statements. So assuming that those statements are true, what advice or thoughts do you have? If those statements are true, that the Pope is saying that Christ did not rise bodily, the Pope is apostate. That's what he is. Nothing less than apostate. He's a heretic. Mm -hmm. The Bible is very, very clear that you have the bodily, visible uh, resurrection of Christ. Christ said to the people, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the commentary, the sacred commentary, he spoke concerning the temple of his body. So he's going to raise his body up. And when Christ came out of the tomb, he raised his body up. The only other religious group I know that do not believe that Christ was raised bodily is the Jehovah's Witness. They said that he was raised. They don't even know what happened to his body. They claim that maybe the body dissolved in gases in the, in, 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 in the tomb. So if the Pope is saying that Christ was not raised bodily, he's aligning himself with the Jehovah's Witness, which is an apostate branch of Christianity. And um, I would say to those people, if you've got a leader that is an apostate, that doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection, my recommendation of you is come out. Separate yourself from this apostasy because uh, the warning in the Bible is come out from among them. Uh, when you're teaching doctrine that's contrary to Scripture, 
there's no need to stay there and compromise. It's a need to uh, find yourself out in a different type of a church that is holding to the Word of God and preaching the Word of God. But to, to remain in the church because your mom was there, your great-grandmom was there, your great-granddad was there, well, dig them up and you come out with them as well. But don't stay in a church where there's apostasy because the Bible warns that in the end times, uh, many will depart from the faith. That has already begun. And I would not be surprised if this Pope, if he really saying what he uh, believes that Christ did not rise bodily, he's part of that apostasy. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live interactive call-in program, and we have about 20 minutes left in the program. The time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 838 if you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a live call-in program, and the voice that you've heard teaching and explaining the Bible is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy. And it's been quite a while since I shared this, and occasionally I have people ask me a little bit about Pastor Murphy, so I'm going to share just a little bit of his credentials. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in English, Bachelor of Arts degree in Theology, Master's degree in Religion, Doctorate degree in Counseling, Ongoing Studies with the Blackford Counseling Center in England, Constantly Reading and Studying. If you know Pastor Murphy, you know that is true. He's been married for almost 40 years, going on 40 years. Uh, he was a public school teacher, so he hasn't just been in ministry for his whole life. He knows how to relate to you. He knows what it's like working in the secular workplace. He was a manager for three years. He worked in marketing for four years, evangelism for two years in Barbados. He ministered in St. Vincent, St. Lucia, and Antigua for over 30 years total. And he has preached in many churches throughout the Caribbean. He's originally from Barbados. For those of you Bayesians who are listening, Pastor has been going through Bible prophecy and just went through in great detail Daniel chapter 7. Pastor, in the last 18 minutes of the program, where do you want to go with the rest of the program? Um, I I don't know if we have enough time to cover um, Daniel chapter 9 with his 70 weeks. Um, I, I, if we go there, I'm not sure if we're going to have enough time to do it. Otherwise, and that the other thing that we can do uh, right now is uh, you remember that in the when we studied chapter number two, it was mentioned of the rock that came, the stone that uh, came and crushed the kingdom of the yeah. world. Would be Jesus it, Christ. It would be. I would like to just uh, maybe uh, trace that that symbolism in the Bible and how it relates uh, to Him. For example, if you look at um, Psalm 118, verse three, could you read that for me, please? Psalm 118 and verse 3 3, says, Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endureth forever. Uh, No, that's what I I wanted. Maybe it it says that uh, this is a stone that the the, um, builders have rejected. Um, Maybe I've got the, maybe Psalm 18. I'm not sure if I wrote. This is the second reference I made a a mess of tonight. Uh, You've had so many references that... 
That's not a problem. Psalm 18. No, that's not it. That's not it. But uh, I'll, I'll get the reference. But it's actually Psalm where um, he talked, this is the stone that the builders have rejected. It's also mentioned, by the way, in the Gospels, uh, there's a reference to Christ, that he is the one that came and the, the builders rejected. And he said the, 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 the stone that the builders had become the chief cornerstone. Uh, it's significant in Daniel chapter 2. It's a stone that strikes these images. So that's a reference to Christ. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, um, it talks about the rock of stumbling. If you just uh, turn there and turn to that one as well. Isaiah uh, 8, 14. I think that other reference may be Psalm 118, 22. Okay, we'll look at that. Then we've got 18, 22. Check that. Yeah. Psalm 118, 22. Uh, let's see if Google was correct. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders refused, it has be, become the head of the corner. That's the exact verse. Again, if you go into the do a parallel passage in the Gospels, you see that that's a reference uh, to Christ. So uh, clearly he is a stone in the Bible. That's a symbol that's used for him in the Scriptures. And that's why it's a stone that comes out of the mountain that crushes the images. It's not with Christ coming and destroying the kings of this world. If you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. That says, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the house of Israel, for a trap and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Again, if you go into the, the Gospels, you'll find that he is the described by the stone of stumbling because, uh, again, he is the one that came as the Jewish Messiah. He came on his own, his own rejected him. The reason why he's a stone of stumbling because the Jews could never accept the fact that the Messiah would be crucified. Uh, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, they're looking for a majestic king to come and destroy the Roman Empire, set them up as the ro world rulers. Even the disciples are thinking about this, uh, want to sit in the right hand and the left hand. Uh, and when he's crucified uh, as a felon, it was a great insult to the Jewish nation. They could not perceive the Messiah as the one who was being crucified. So he became a, a, st a stumbling stone to them because they stumbled over the fact that he died and that was what his first coming was about. His second coming was about reigning. His first coming was to come to die for the sins of the world. But the Jews never got over that, even today. Yeah. The Jewish people reject the fact that Christ is the Messiah because they cannot conceive of their Messiah dying a most ignominious death, conquered by the Romans and defeated. But they didn't understand that he could have called 10,000 angels, but he remained there because he came to die for us, to die for the sin. But when he returns a second time, now he fulfills the promise of reigning. But he's a stumbling block to the Jews today because of his crucifixion and his death. And then if you look at Isaiah 26, verse six, 28, verse 16, That says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. He's a cornerstone. We know that. Uh, you go back to the Gospels, you find reference to that, that he is the cornerstone. So, in the Psalms and in Isaiah, uh, God had already predicted that this stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he would be, and then one last one, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 5. 
Zechariah comes just before Malachi, which is the last book of the Bible. Thank you for that reminder on the fly here. (laughs) Zechariah chapter what? 3, verse 5. All right, that says, And I said, Let them set a clean turban upon his head. So they set a clean turban upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Uh, I don't know that. I don't know what that. Um, I have that reference there. Three five. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, three five. Yeah, I'm not too sure what happened there again. I've got to double check these references before we um, try three fifteen. Is it three fifteen? There's not. It ends with verse ten. Okay. I will. While you're explaining it, I or the, explaining the verse that you're looking for. I will look up here. Uh-huh. Um. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on oh. 1160 a.m. It's nine. Verse 9. Yeah, it's 3 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the engraving of it, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Yeah, we're not... not can't go into details of the interpretation of that, but the fact that the stone here has seven eyes. Now, you know, if you know anything about seven, seven is the number of completion, yeah. and that shows, and ha- eyes have to do with seeing. This is this is the omniscient one, and this stone indicates that whatever the stone is, uh, he knows everything. And this clearly refers to Jesus Christ as well. The point I'm making here that there are different symbols in the Bible and different uh, representations. What you need to do when you find a reference, go into the Bible and find parallel passages and find references and uh, when you look at the stone which destroys its images it's very clear that Christ is coming back he's a stone that will destroy the kingdom of this world and initiate and establish his own kingdom Pastor we have a WhatsApp comment that has come from St. Kitts Nevis good night brother Murphy and brother Nathan I am following the program tonight and I have been reading the passages with you real powerful real informative and enlightening I'm learning so much. Thanks again. Have a blessed night. And then a WhatsApp message that is also coming, and it says, Good night and blessings. I am from Antigua. Why do you say that the Pope is not the Antichrist when Martin Luther and so many reformers said that he is? Just wanted to know, or is he the false prophet, part of the evil... Uh, th- as given in Revelation by the Apostle John. Thanks. God bless you, Dr. Murphy. The reason why I say that, you remember, you've got to understand the situation in which Martin Luther and those other people found themselves. They were fighting against Rome. I mean, they came out of the Roman uh, Roman Catholic Church. They never really wanted to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church, but the Roman Catholic Church cannot be reformed. Uh, they withhold to their doctrine, even though the doctrine is in error, and it can be proven again and again, there's no purgatory. There's no need to pray to any woman whatsoever. That's total idolatry. Uh, the, 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 the mass, uh, when you say the mass, clearly there's no changing of the bread and the wafer into the little body, something called transubstantiation. All of that is false. There's no need to pray to saints. You don't pray to angels. There's no basis for that kind of teaching anywhere in the Bible. Mary was not immaculately conceived. Mary was a sinner. 
right? Uh, Mary, the assumption of Mary that she was taken directly into heaven, that's false. That she's enthroned as the queen of heaven, that's false. All of these are false teachings. So Martin Luther and those people really saw that the enemy that were fighting was the Pope, to be honest with you. And I think that a person's experiences colors his interpretation of the passage. And in that day, that great enemy seemed to be the Pope because he was doing all these different types of things that were wrong. But again, if you read Revelations, the Catholic Church is the great whore that rides the beasts. This is where there would be a marriage between religion and the political uh, powers at the end times of the Bible. We'll come to that hopefully in the book of Revelations. But that's where the Catholic Church comes in. Uh, that she, the, the woman who is called, described as a great whore, she commits fornication with all the kings of the earth. This is now politics and religion being married together because... No politician, no world leader can control this world apart from integrating religion. Yeah. Okay. And that's where there would be a compromise between the politics of the end times and the religion of the end times. There'd be a great marriage, and that's where the, the Catholic Church comes in. That's why, by the way, there's such a uh, a power of the Catholic Church today, the revival of the Catholic Church. The, the Pope goes all over the world, and wherever he goes, millions of people. He is going to be like the magnet to bring all these groups together under what's called an ecumenical system. Remember that Rome is prepared to accept any and every religion as long as they acknowledge the Pope as the head. The Pope has gone into the, the, the Hindu temple, for example, and prayed. The, hope, the Pope is, is uh, in, in cahoots with even the Muslims. If the Muslim church, uh, Muslim group and the Hindus want to come under the Catholic Church and the umbrella of the Catholic Church and access as a religion and the Pope as the head, that would be acceptable. So, so um, she has a major role to play in the end times, but the Antichrist is going to be the political leader the false prophet is who you're talking about, uh, no doubt, will be part of this, this um, ecumenical system at the, uh, the end. Um, but the actual political leader, the Antichrist, is going to be a political leader, not a religious leader. But the, the religious leader is going to work with him. He's called his second, the, the false prophet, we will find in the book of Revelations as well. Pastor, is God in charge of everything? Well, the Bible leaves no doubt about that. Um, so he's in charge of which kingdoms rise and which ones fall? God has a will. God has a purpose. God has a program. He has a blueprint. So if that's the case, then why is he, and he knows from the beginning of time to the end of time, why is he raising up these kingdoms to fight against him? Well, look, all I would say to you is that uh, in the mind of God, ultimately it's about human redemption. Uh, we don't know all the details behind what God does, but we do know that uh, God's ultimate goal is to win men to Christ, to bring men to faith in Him, to trust men, uh, to bring men to, to redemption, and uh, all of His entire political program, the end of it. For example, uh, you look at the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had to come in place. Why? In the fullness of, fullness of time. Yeah. Number one, how was Christ going to die? Crucifixion. There's only one empire that ever instituted crucifixion. That's the Roman Empire. Mm. So that was put in place to accomplish what God's prophetic word had said. Uh, it doesn't mean that God made man do This is the thing that people need to understand. God is not the author of evil. Neither does he push anybody to do evil. But... Um, the, what God does is God has a plan and a purpose, and God knows exactly how things are going to turn out. Men are acting on this world stage. They make their choices, they make their decisions, and God moves to accomplish His purpose within the exercise of human will. Now, how that 
can be explained without any semblance of paradox or, or contradiction. I don't think anybody knows. But we know one thing. God is sovereign, and we know that man is responsible. So we've got to keep those two things in tandem. But the truth of the matter is that God knows world history, and God orchestrates world history to bring about his purpose. Pastor, there is so much religious confusion out there. There's confusion in our world, but then you, even in the world of religion, so much confusion. For the listener that is saying, I am really seeking, and I want to know what the truth is, but I don't know where to turn, what advice do you have? Simple advice. I would t- tell anybody who is confused or searching, get into the Word of God. Now listen to me, you, you, if find a Bible that you can grasp and you can understand. Look, I'm a King James person, I use the King James Bible in the pulpit. I'm not an exclusive King James person in my studies. And there are times when you read in the King James Version, the, the, the language is so difficult for those who were not brought up on it. I would suggest you to get a very good English translation of the Bible. Start getting into the Word of God, and as you go to the Word of God, pour your heart out before God and ask Him for light and understanding. Uh, pray to Him and ask Him to show you the truth. And that, But there's one condition, that if He shows you the truth, that you will obey the truth and follow the truth, because God is not going to give you light unless you're willing to respond to that light. So as God reveals certain truth to you, obey that truth, practice that truth, and you find that God will give you further truth, etc., etc. The other thing I would recommend to you is find a good church that preaches the Word of God. I repeat, find a good church that expounds the Word of God. If you're listening and you are looking for a church that is preaching the Word of God, and we're not trying to take you away from your church if it's preaching the Word of God, but if you are looking for a church, let me invite you to Grace Baptist Church. That is the church that Pastor Murphy is the pastor of. It is on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles, Terrace, Antigua. Sunday school at 9 a.m., morning service at 10 a.m. on Sunday, and an evening service at 7 p.m., and a Thursday evening midweek service, which rotates between prayer and Bible study. And once a month, we also have just a discussion about world topics or what the Bible says about different topics. Again, Grace Baptist Church, we would love to have you come visit if you are looking for a Bible-preaching church. I want to add to that. Sorry for the interruption. Uh, those are uh, My wife is calling me. She's away. <laughs> And I didn't turn my phone off. But look, I mentioned the matter of reading the Word. Get a good Bible copy that you understand the English language very well and start reading the Word. And try doing it systematic. I would suggest that if you're not a believer, start with the Gospel of John. Then go to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, go to the New Testament because that's where you begin to understand the teachings of Christ and what He expects of you. I mentioned the matter of prayer. Always ask God to open your eyes to give you an understanding. David said to the Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous truths of your word. The third thing I would recommend is find a good Christian that you really know is an authentic believer. That You, you must know an authentic believer in Antigua. A person that really lives out the Christian faith and you're sure that this person knows God, follows God. And the other thing I would suggest to you, try to get some books on apologetics. I would recommend uh, Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Mm. Uh, if you really have some issues about, I don't know what you're concerned about, the Bible, how we got the Bible, um, um, why is evolution false, or uh, was the resurrection true, what the Christian faith is all about, um, I would recommend you get some, at least that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think that is a profound book. Remember that Josh McDowell was also a lawyer, 
He's also a great Christian expositor, and he's also an apologist. But I think if you were to get hold of that book, you might get some of the answers that you need that you're struggling with. And then I would say to you as well, you know, if you want us to rap anytime, just give me a buzz and give me a telephone number. We'll talk and see exactly what we can do. But um, if you're searching, the Bible says, if you search for me with all your heart, you're going to find me. So search the Word of God and uh, take those things, pray to God, find a good Christian, get a good Christian church, and then start to look in some books on apologetics that would help you to uh, be able to answer questions that you may have that you're uncertain about. We have a follow-up message from the individual in the Antigua in relation to the Pope and the Antichrist. The reason that I asked what I did is because of the title that he, the Pope, takes, which is the Vicar of Christ. Thanks again for your answer and continue to be strengthened in the Lord and impart the scriptures. God bless you. I don't know if the person is aware that the Pope also carried the word uh Maximus Pontifus, uh, something like that. I forgot the, the exact Latin. And by the way, that is the same title that the pagan high priests uh, assumed. And when when um, Constantine um, made uh, Christianity the main religion of, of Rome, uh, he took all those titles from the pagan high priests and he assumed that as well. So the, it's, I think it's pa- Maximus uh, Pontifus Maximus, something of that nature. I have to get the exact expression. But that's the title that the pagan priest carried. The the, the, the Pope now assumed that. Uh, and the reason for that, of course, is that a lot of the things that came out of paganism into the church was a result that they wanted to win the pagans. So a lot of the practices the pagans had, it was brought into the church. Now, we may not want to admit this, but a lot of the things that are involved in the modern church uh, and some of these people like the Seventh-day Adventists and the, and the JW are right about some of these things that they came into the church as a result of paganism coming into the church. Very subtle. Um, and we need to be aware of these things. Pastor, in 30 seconds, what does the Bible say is the true gospel? The true gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried, he was resurrected, and he came back alive again and offers free grace, free salvation to any man who put their faith and trust in him. And is my salvation dependent on anything that I can do? The only thing your salvation depends on is faith. And what I mean by that, faith is not a work. Uh, Faith is an act where you put your trust in God. That's all God requires of you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. God bless you. Have a great evening. Make sure that you join us next Tuesday evening as we continue this discussion about Bible prophecy. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.